0: This is not the media. This is hell.
1: I gotta say, one of the most enjoyable things I've ever seen in my life is June Carter Cash dragging Johnny Cash off of stage and saying to him, You're having too much fun now. It was really, really spectacular.
0: You saw that in real life?
1: Yeah, uh... The first farm aid, he was playing with the highwaymen. They opened up because Merle Haggard was about to get way too drunk, so they had to have them open up farm aid. And they were having so much fun, and June Carter Cash came out and just took his arm and walked him off stage. It was really incredible. Public transit is racist. It's classist. It's even sexist. And who and where it serves is determined by a bunch of technocrats who designed the system for... White male middle class downtown workers, instead of the people who actually use public transit, the most and the ones who utterly depend upon it, and those are people of color who are not so well off. There is an alternative, and it's not privatizing mass transit, that would be a nightmare. What if all public transit was free? What if public transit wasn't public at all? That is. What if it was run not by the state and its special business interests, including developers assigning public transit to their for-profit projects? What if transit was seen as a common good? Today, we will consider the very democratic process of opening up transit and eventually everything else to the concept of the commons and what a mobility commons means and how it takes control away from capital and gives it to the people. In a few minutes, we'll be talking to our guest urban politics scholar, Teresa Enright, who wrote the science... Society and Space Magazine Article Commotion Which you can find at Societyandspace.org Teresa is Associate Professor of Political Science At the University of Toronto And she is author of the 2016 book The Making of Grand Paris Metropolitan Urbanism in the 21st century, which sounds fascinating. Follow Teresa on Twitter at TenRight. That's T E N R I G H T T N Right. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, apt toothed radio show live stream podcast host Chuck Mertz, producing as always. Alex Jerry, Alex, please remind us what's this week's question from hell?
0: This week's question from hell is: What are you going to be deranged about after Trump? What are you going to be deranged about? After Trump,
1: we got a lot of really good responses. Some not so great, but we got (laughs) some really fantastic ones. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question hell wins our new gray on black This Is Hell face mask. You can check out the new gray on black This Is Hell face mask at and all of our merchandise by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you can find all the ways you can contribute to completely listener supported This Is Hell. Without you, we got nothing. So thanks for all your support. You can leave your answer to this week's question mail at our Facebook page, Facebook.com slash ThisIsHellRadio. You can tweet it to us at ThisIsHellRadio. You can email it to either of us, Alex at ThisIsHell.com, Chuck at ThisIsHell.com. But we must have your answer by the end of Thursday's today's show when we are announcing this week's winner. Following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth, during this week's moment of truth, Jeff hammers the history of class consciousness into shape. Alex will have more of your answers to this week's question mail following our guest, Your eyewitness to grief This is Hell On Tuesday we mentioned how we got an email From a listener, John, requesting That we help promote the fundraiser They're having over at Counterpunch Which appears to be in dire financial straits Sure, they're doing a lot better than we are here At This Is Hell, but we used to get a lot of our Guests, and we made a lot of contacts through Counterpunch, and we want to show them our appreciation for everything they do. And they were doing it a long time before anyone else was, so we really appreciate the work that Counterpunch has done. In fact, this week's Patreon podcast is going to feature an interview with the author of a 2008 Counterpunch article, which we will be mentioning later on today's show. We got another email from John thanking us for supporting the Counterpunch fundraising drive, which is now at 30% of their targeted goal. John writes, thanks for helping out Counterpunch and for laying out your financial circumstances relative to Counterpunch. I stand corrected. I will reach into my piggy bank and find a few dollars for you. Does anyone own a piggy bank anymore is that just some artifact from the past but thanks john we appreciate all the help we can get and with bringing on new board operators who we want to actually pay for working on the show your help is needed now more than ever john continues i actually started listening to this is hell back in the late 90s and think i found counterpunch via your show it's all a blur my sister went to northwestern university and i always listen to wnur This goes back to at least the days of Eric the Gemini Prince and his live on-scene interviews from the Wild Hare. Marsha, so glad to be alive when you're alive, prior to the feds taking over the Wild Hare. That is so weird I completely forgot about how reggae dominated Programming at WNUR for like 20 years And how the, I mean they had like 16 hours Of programming on the weekends Every Saturday and Sunday, just reggae And how the uh, reggae club on Clark Clark Street, just south of Addison Chicago, <laughs> actually in Wrigleyville There was a reggae club The Wild Hair, where I would get free food From their buffet every Sunday night Because I was broke right when I moved to Chicago How they had some tax problems And the federal government was running a reggae club In Wrigleyville, a place where you could score weed. Not good weed, but you could score weed, and the federal government was running the place. John adds, I was an unreconstructed libertarian, and around 2000 I read Howard Zinn's A People's History of the United States, and I've never looked back. I would listen to the Northwestern uh, University, Northwestern Wildcat football games from my parking lot booth, and post false scores with... (laughs) Wildcats up by two or three touchdowns just to see the reaction on those Michigan Wolverines fans' faces. Damn that interweb. Sadly, that would likely get me fired today. John, as one former parking lot booth operator to another, nice to meet you, my booth brother. John continues, thanks for all the time you have donated And thank your girlie who, though you mention her often Is really one of the unsung heroes in your story Helping to sustain hell all these years Please tell us more about your story and the story of This Is Hell Why and how you did it and I'll be doing that on tomorrow's Patreon podcast at Patreon.com slash this is hell. Yes, I'll tell you how and why I do this silly show. John concludes with, by the way, my wife is from the Tri City area of Midland Bay City and Saginaw, Michigan. And I totally get much of what you say when you talk about how many of those in the two-party system, the far right and the extreme right, do not get the story out in the industrial heartland. On the way to or from Michigan, we often take M46 and I I think of This as Hell and the Mertz Compound. Again, keep up the great work. M46 is the highway that uh, bisects Michigan's Lower Peninsula and runs from Muskegon to Saginaw, about an hour due south of where we go on our family vacation every year. And I wouldn't call it a compound as much as a group of cabins that are losing their fight against the elements, including the element of gravity. Thanks for the email, John, and if you have a little extra money laying around, any of our listeners, show your support for Counterpunch by donating to their fundraiser at counterpunch.org. You can email us at chuck at and if you do, we will likely share your thoughts on the show. Coming up, public transit is good, for is good, but there is something better, and that is a transit commons. We'll also have Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth this week's moment. Jeff hammers the history of class consciousness into shape. We'll have more of your answers to this week's question. Mel, what are you going to be deranged about after Trump? You can leave your, mess, your answer at our Facebook page, tweet it to us, or email it to us. Capitalism is the virus and this is hell. Public transit isn't all bad. It gets those of us who cannot afford a car or cannot drive at all a way to get from one place to another. But it could be a hell of a lot better. Public transit as it stands today serves the public unequally, reinforcing inequality by focusing on white middle class workers as customers instead of the people who utilize the systems the most, working class people of color. And that's only one issue with transit that can be overcome when we take it from being public To Being part of the commons Here to help us understand a different way of considering Mobility, urban politics Scholar Teresa Enright wrote the Society and Space magazine Article, Commotion, which you can find At societyandspace.org Welcome to This is Hell, Teresa
2: Thank you. Thanks
1: for having me. Teresa is Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Toronto. She is the author of the 2016 book, The Making of Grand Paris, Metropolitan Urbanism in the 21st Century, which sounds absolutely fascinating. And you can follow Teresa on Twitter at TNRIGHT. That's E-N-R-I-G-H-T. You begin by writing transit networks are objects of intense political contestation and are key terrains of struggle in cities around the world. Common, as opposed to public infrastructures of transit, suggested ways of organizing mobility and resistance to state apparatuses of violence, exclusion, and accumulation. How is, this is the most basic, common, uh, basic question I can possibly ask, how is the commons different from the public? How is the idea of the, con, of the commons different from the concept of the public?
2: That's a really great question. And I think often in popular discourse or colloquially, we tend to use these interchangeably. If we're talking about public space or something like a public good, those could also be common spaces and common goods. But I think that there are some key differences and distinctions between the two terms, um, and that if we follow those distinctions, we actually see how the terms, the public and the commons might give rise to different kinds of political imaginaries and different ways of organizing space and society. So start with the public. Um, This is a term that we're generally familiar with. And the main thing that defines the public today in the modern era, especially in liberal democratic societies is really a relationship to the state and to the nation state. So public service are state workers, um, public goods are those that are provided by the state, public land is owned by the state, et cetera. So the t- state is tasked with managing and arbitrating the public on behalf of its constituents. So it's it's very much a vertical relationship of uh, many, many different individuals with a kind of sovereign authority. And I think the common is defined slightly differently in that it really entails more horizontal kinds of relationships between a community of actors and between resources and goods that they share, they might produce together, they use in common, and they manage cooperatively. So I think there's, um, if we're thinking of maybe what the limitations of the public are, there's two main limitations that, that then reveal themselves when we talk about something Particular like transportation, so the public um, first is very much um, tied to the protection of private property, right? And this, as states uh, formed in you know the 18th century and developed into the modern era, um, th- this was their foundational principle. Really, was the protection of property, and. Instead of thinking about the public and private as being opposed a lot of theorists of the state really draw attention to the way in which um, the public and the private actually kind of mirror one another. And the second main limitation is the way that uh, the state is an exclusive body. So publics are always defined by insiders and outsiders. And of course, if we're thinking of nation state systems these are violently upheld through systems of borders. And the commons allows us to think about ways of organizing society and ways of sharing resources that can overcome those limitations, I think, or at least give them a different spin. So uh, commons is distinctive because it cuts across these Republican distinctions of public and private, and it also describes modes of cooperation, of co-governing, of decision-making that um, exceed the representational systems of liberal democracies. And it allows us to think about modes of belonging to each other um, that are based on solidarity and reciprocity and care instead of a competitive forms of individualism.
1: So, you know, one of the problems that a lot of critics have had on our show with neoliberalism is that neoliberalism undermines the political imagination. There is no alternative. So how does the public affect the way in which we view the world, and which we – how does the public affect our political ima- imagination relative to how the commons would affect our political imagination?
2: Yeah, that's, that's a good question. And, and the commons has really been – I think, become more popular. It, it, commons have existed historically in a lot of different places and a lot of different eras and a lot of different configurations, but the, the discourses of the commons um, and especially kind of activist practices organizing or explicitly around notions of the commons have really come to the fore in this period of neoliberalism because it allows us to think outside of um, uh, outside of the confines of a kind of rationalities of marketization um, and rationalities of a kind of atomized individuals who come together only to to pursue their own individual ends. And it gives us an alternative to thinking about uh, the the ways that we might want to decide on this share between individual and, and collective resources. And so a lot of people, when they talk about the commons, they're not just talking about goods or resources that exist out there, they're actually talking about political principles, principles that uh, are founded on solidarity, on care, on reciprocity, which are not the same as the kind of principles that we see underlying neoliberal publics today.
1: You mentioned how the public and private mirror each other. In the way that we have discourse right now, political discourse in the United States, uh, far too often it's The public versus the private. If you support the state or if you support business, how do we view the world differently? How do we understand the world differently? Once we understand that the public and private really just mirror each other, they're certainly not something that is separate and in competition with one another.
2: Here, I might might bring it down to the question of transportation because I think it elucidates this point of how we might think across those categories. And uh, public transportation, of course, has a a long history of uh, being a a welfare good. And so it seems kind of absurd and maybe counterintuitive or counterproductive to to criticize public transportation today. It's one of our last vestiges of a, a functioning welfare state. But I think if you look at the history of what is what we call public transportation even from its inception in a lot of different locations it was pursued for uh to to enable capitalist accumulation it was pursued to get laborers to the the factory or to get labor to their places of work and increasingly today it's also a means to kind of anchor global flows of capital to provide a map for these kind of sprawling hubs of, of smart cities and new industries. And so it's used as, as you mentioned in your introduction as well. And this is something that I've studied a lot in, in the case of Paris, um, it's used as a way to benefit private developers, right? And to channel public funds into the hands of developers in real estate that benefit from these amenities in new places. And so there you can see that the public and private are are very much intertwined. And so what I wanted to do in this piece is really to ask, well, how can we think around those terms? And if there is such a thing as as common transit, what would it look like? And how can we um, build kind of mobility systems and and urban transit systems that are not bound to those interests of of capital and then allow us to think about freedom emancipation in more general terms, about the socialization of land and property um, and about especially a kind of redistribute, like substantive redistribution of opportunity and resources and power to those who have been disadvantaged through public systems in the past.
1: You write that in the past year, transit systems across the Americas have been sites of intense political unrest. And you mention actions in New York City, Toronto, Ottawa, Montreal, Washington, D.C., Vancouver, and even Santiago, Chile. The only one of those we've reported on on our show is the strike in Santiago. These are not getting the attention that they would seem to deserve, especially when this is not only becoming a national phenomenon, but international and now across the Americas. To what extent... Are these actions getting pressed locally where they happen, but not necessarily nationally or globally? Because I'm wondering, is this a movement or are these individual actions coincidentally taking place simultaneously?
2: I think that, um, I mean, those are are good questions as well. I think they are getting some attention locally. So probably if you were to look um, in these individual cities, you might see some attention to them and certainly in Toronto uh, there's not necessarily attention to this free transit movement which I reference in the in the article uh, but there is attention to the inadequacies of the public transit system and that is almost daily news actually in Toronto especially um, in light of the the COVID-19 pandemic and the, the changes that that has brought about to the transit system So I think that they are getting attention but I think that there hasn't been a sustained uh, analysis of these various events together as being part of something bigger and part uh, being about more than just the sum of these individual struggles. Now, that being said, it is really important to think contextually about uh, the history of these various transit systems and as well as what these activists and protesters and maybe demonstrators are doing on the ground. I tended in the article to focus on more progressive forms of transit activism, but there are certainly regressive NIMBY forms of activism happening around transit systems um, in the Americas as well. So, transit becomes a kind of flashpoint for a lot of different desires and a lot of different political desires, I think. And what I wanted to do in bringing together these various kinds of activist work and these various protests that all in different ways have to do with transportation is really to see what they do have in common. So in some ways they have, um, even though some are more about labor, some are labor struggles, uh, which were staged by transit workers. Um, in other places, the questions are really about um, anti-poverty measures. So some of the, the calls for free transit, for example, come from um, poverty, anti-poverty activists. Some of them call them environmentalists who are you know, positioning transit as a lever for green new deals. Um, Some of these protests are anti-racist protests, so one of the the groups that I mentioned in the article, the Swipe It Forward campaign out of New York City, doesn't even consider itself to be a a kind of transit activist network. It considers itself to be a a Black self-defense fund and a Black self-defense network that's really uh, trying to draw attention to and to sustain indignation to predatory policing and violence on transit systems. Um, so it's more of an abolitionist and anti-racist movement that that kind of uses transit as a platform for its campaign, because that's where the, those kinds of violences are felt.
1: And I w- I'm going to get to those uh, violences in just a moment, moment because that is a, the Swipe It Forward campaign is really fascinating. But one of the mm-hmm. things that you mentioned, I just want to make sure people understand Uh, the kind of social control that happens within public transit or any public agency when uh, services being provided by one. You write, these mobilizations, and we could include other examples from London to Paris to Hong Kong. This is happening worldwide. Reveal transit systems as institutions engineered for social control, but also an essential site of collective action and resistance. How is requiring fees to ride mass transit, a form of social control? Because I think the, the state would argue, the, the public transit theory would argue, by paying fees, you are showing ownership over the public transit system because you are the ones who are funding the service. So this is your service because you pays, pay fees for this. So how are fees uh, an object of social control and not an object of public ownership?
2: Well, when I when I think about social control, I also think about the way that these institutions are engineered on a, a kind of broader scale. So if we think just in terms of the like the, the urban region writ large, where transit networks go and where they're located and where they don't go, says a lot about how you can move around the city and who gets to go where. So just at the, this kind of basic level of land use, um, then, they are a matter of controlling mobility and controlling movements and for different people because transit system um, is not equal everywhere right we don't have these universal grids we have lines and we have gaps and we have disconnections as well and so that that really matters to kind of just generally how we move about the city and how we experience the city but on the question of fares in particular I think um, this kind of stakeholder model uh, or this customer model of um, paying fares that, that you cite here um, is the general way that we think about public services and it's the way that we think about transit. You know, if you have, you have a stake in this, if you pay, then um, you're contributing to it and you're also benefiting from it. And you're more likely to, I don't know, take, take better care of the system if you've um, put in your, your fee on a daily basis. And I think um, the first way that this is a matter of, of social control, of course, is not everybody can even afford the fare. Um, and so it automatically excludes people. It excludes people um, who are low income. It excludes people who are on fixed incomes, who um, are below the poverty line. And this becomes a real problem because essentially it says that you know, our, our transit systems, and again, this looks different in different places, um, are only for a select few, so they may be public, but that public is a very constrained public and social control also happens in other ways so um, New York is a, is a great example of this um, the way that then policing those fares comes to become a large part of the the transit experience and not just related to the Swipe It Forward campaign, but a lot of the demonstrations that were happening in New York City in 2019 had to do with the increases of police on the MTA network and the increased funding for um, fair enforcement on the MTA network. And right now, um, fair beating which is their, or fair evasion is the number one arrest offense in New York City. Um, and almost 85% of those who are cited are people of color, and so that itself is very much a matter of social control, and it's a matter of, of racist social control that's kind of built into the infrastructures of everyday life, and so that is another means of control that's that's being contested.
1: You write that not only is mobility not a pre-existing natural resource to be conserved, but due to the scale of urban transit, its fundamental embeddedness in other urban systems and the complex financial, legal, and technical expertise through which it is uh, comprised, it is generally accepted even by those on the left that transit is best organized by the state. Why does the left defer to the state and not take the next step of rooting transit or anything in the commons? What do you think explains that shortcoming?
2: I think um, transit is a bit of a unique case here because some some public goods um, we can really easily translate into more autonomous kinds of commons movements and commons activities. So, you know, this is a very simplistic example, but the idea of a community garden, it's very easy to imagine a group of neighbours taking care of a garden on, you know, otherwise vacant land and, contributing to the labor, um, instituting rules for its management, and then sharing in the wealth that the garden produces. That's a very contained model of a commons. Although on on the ground, even those kind of urban and gardening initiatives become much messier in in practice. But when we're talking about transportation and mobility, um, the scale is so much greater the technical expertise required to create a a transit network is um, is immense. And the transit networks, mobility networks are very much integrated and interconnected with other kinds of urban systems. So legal systems, land use systems, um, other kinds of infrastructural systems that they require in order to function properly. And so it's it's a scale question, it's a complexity question to think about how then could we manage these systems more collectively. And I think, I mean, I kind of agree with this line that it it is maybe impractical or even impossible not to have the state involved, especially right now at a moment of environmental crisis and other kinds of reverberating urban crises, that the state has the resources, it has the capacity and it has the um, kind of technical know-how to to make these systems right at a large scale. But that's not enough. And I think what the activists that I've been looking at and that I've been learning from um, have really been signaling is that in order to make transit systems more democratic and sustainable and equitable, that this state is not the body that can do that um, because of this long history that, that I've mentioned already. And so we need to, and this is the, the kind of phrasing of um, some of the, the academic work that I've included in the article, especially by Pierre Dardot and Christiane Laval, who come up with their idea of the commons as, a, as an anti capitalist rationality and an ethical coordinate for politics. And so they talk about commoning as an activity, as a practice. And for them, um, this allow, if we think about this as a political practice and not just as kind of pre existing good, that allows us to work through incumbent institutions in order to transform them and in order to overcome them. Uh, so the state might be necessary, but it's not going to be sufficient for the kinds of uh, futures that are very much necessary right now.
1: And you mentioned the inherent limits of the nation state, as you were just pointing on, uh, pointing to, uh, the inherent limits of the nation state form and its public services. How does the nation state form and you already touched on this, but how much how does it uh, undermine its own public services? Because this is one area in which the nation state is supposed to be a benefit and that it is supposed to be able to organize and provide public services in a social safety net. So how do you think that nation state form can undermine the very services it promises to provide in exchange for citizen loyalty and appreciation even a sense of indebtedness to the state?
2: Yeah, I think there's a lot of ways we can think about the limits of the state. So I mentioned the two in, in terms of um, its reliance on, on private property and its um, bolstering regimes of public private property, sorry, um, as well as its exclusionary nature. We could also think at a basic level, um, at least for nation states across the Americas, all of these states um, are, are settler colonial states. Um, and certainly transit systems themselves are built on Indigenous land and so they're complicit with these settler colonial projects in one way or another and that too goes unacknowledged when we're talking about public goods um, and public spaces and so we might we might think about this kind of violent foundations of the state we might think of um, in the US and Canada the way that um, the, the foundings of the state was very much a racial project um, and the way that that continues into the present. And so a lot of the anti-racist movements and the Black Lives Matter movements that have focused on questions of transportation and mobility go back to these kind of founding principles of what uh, who, what the public is imagined to be and, and who really benefits from public services and public structures.
1: You mentioned to draw out the social processes of commoning, I focus on three main activities, agitation, appropriation, and amplification. Can these three activities, can they be applied to any issue or challenge in trying to create a commons, or are these specific to a transit and mobility commons? Is this a template that can be used, or do you think this is specific for these actions?
2: I don't think it's a, a template. I had it more in mind as a kind of heuristic device to think about different ways of configuring use and management and ownership and responsibility. So I don't think that they're necessarily bound to transportation or to transit or to mobility, but that they really come to the fore when we're thinking about what's going on in the transportation sphere and what what's going on with transit activists um, or, or in these various sites. So um, by agitation, appropriation, and amplification, I think those are kind of political activities or different kinds of strategic and tactical activities that really could be applied to a number of different, both both in terms of the the analytics, but also the the kind of practices themselves that can be applied to a wide range of struggles and struggles for the commons, um, as well as other political struggles today. But these are the ones that I really saw being Prevalent in the activists' work around around transportation and around public transportation.
1: And you're right that on the one hand, agitation aims to disrupt the status quo in ways that are highly visible, so that business as usual, which for many is unbearable, cannot continue. On the other hand, agitation goes beyond disruption and is an active mode of instituting change to make the day-to-day more livable and to repurpose architectures of power in pursuit of what University of Toronto professor focusing on contested spaces Deborah Cohen calls infrastructure otherwise how can disruption lead to instituting change to make the day-to-day more livable and what is missed or lost in the power or the strategy of disruption when it does not take that next step because you know again this is through the mainstream establishment media it seems that all we ever hear about is the disruption and not any kind of follow-up next step to make the day-to-day more livable
2: yeah great thank you and thank you for um referencing deborah cowan's work as well because i think that it was very helpful for thinking about not just the the need to critique existing infrastructures and public services but to think about what alternatives are being made in the present? And when I talk about agitation, that's where I talk about the swipe it forward campaign, which is a really interesting project that comes out of New York City, um, where people who have Metro cards, kind of monthly Metro cards, can swipe in those who don't have a fare. And this is a legal practice. It's not legal to ask for a swipe um, or solicit, but it is legal to swipe in people un kind of unprovoked. And so in this sense, the, the Swipe It Forward campaign is, is not just about uh, disruption. And actually they do a very, various kinds of activities. Sometimes they do do um, swipe actions where a number of different organizers will go to a station, particularly those stations that are home to disadvantaged populations and to black and brown populations. And they will swipe in a, a bunch of different commuters. But their aim there is not just to kind of, it's not the same as disrupting transit, which other activists are doing all the time. Of course, in some Black Lives Matter protests do aim to disrupt and to draw attention, to really make visible um, the way in which transit is not a viable life support system. But the Swipe It Forward campaign is a little bit more than that, because I think that what they're doing is um, they're not, they're drawing attention to the problems and to the, the kind of grave injustices of racist policing and the way that that is, is, is hurting people, it's incarcerating them um, and subjecting individuals to, to harm and in some cases even death on transit systems. But they're also creating these systems of mutual aid and, and mutual responsibility. And that happens through kind of sharing, sharing what's there. And so that's what I mean. And I, I refer to this as being kind of a creative counterconduct. conduct. Um, so it's both an agitation, but it's more than that because they're creating new kinds of systems. And actually the, all of the, the groups that I mentioned, so I talk about Free Transit Toronto and the Untokening Initiative, which is a multiracial collective that operates across various cities in the United States. And I think we can also see that in the other uh, actions as well is that of course, agitation disruption is part of it, but um, these groups are also working to build alternatives and they're, they're built, they are either for the day-to-day as in um, kind of day-to-day survival as in swipe it forward or um, through the other campaigns for thinking about the future of transit and what it might look like. Um, and they're, they're trying to organize on the ground and conduct trainings, um, engage participatory practices in order to really overturn from the inside out um, the rationalities that are guiding transit planning today and its operations, and, um, and this, the, to, get to, to overhaul the, the governing institutions as well, so to, to kind of change who is seen to own and who gets to make decisions about transit systems and their futures.
1: And when we get to the swipe it forward campaign, what they're really upset about is the kind of predatory policing that you do see in public transit. How is there predatory policing in the transit system? How, how is transit a site of racialized police discrimination and profiling? Because you mentioned uh, broken windows policing. And I'm, I'm really curious how that kind of thinking might manifest itself on public transit. Yeah. Well,
2: I don't, I don't want to speak for the, the, the campaign. Um, Certainly they might have a, a different answer for this, but I can talk more generally about uh, the way that policing happens on, on transit systems. And in in many systems like the, the MTA, there are both uh, municipal police and transit police who are tasked with keeping safety and security, but who have an explicit also, um, a, they, they have an explicit aim to crack down on fair evasion, um, and to make sure that people are paying their fare, that people are not jumping their turnstiles and, and engaging in um, what they refer to as a, as a kind of theft of this public service, although that's part of the, the question, right? Is if this is everybody's, is this the common good, then, then is evasion really a practice that undermines that or that actualizes it? Um, and so uh, I, I mentioned the stats before it's the number one cited offense is fair evasion in in, um, in arrest offense in New York City and this just dis- disproportionately affects black and brown riders and people of color in Toronto um, we similarly the stats aren't quite as high but um, recently the Uh, TTC, which is the Toronto Transit Commission, which owns or operates the the transit system in the city, has launched its own very aggressive fare evasion campaign to crack down on those who have not paid. We have a new ticketing system where um, it's a proof of payment system. And so in alongside the initiation of this new proof of payment system, there was a really quite aggressive campaign that was criminalizing riders essentially um, and especially riders who didn't couldn't pay their fare and and that too when the analysis was done was shown to be disproportionately affecting people of color and especially um, black commuters within the city so I think that very much is a itself a site of violence. Um, Of course, in the United States, the way that this is an arrest offense, so it could lead to incarceration, so it's part of this over-incarceration of people of color in the U.S. prison system. And in some cases, the the violence is much more um, immediate. So the case of Oscar Grant um, is is very well known, who was riding the BART on New Year's Day in 2009, and was killed by BART police. Um, And that became a rallying point for for activists who said that police should not be on transit systems. They they should be abolished, the BART police should be abolished. Um, But more than that, this is not where we should be directing our resources to policing who's moving and how. And that's too where the kind of free transit movement can kind of sidestep those issues as well. If transit were recognized as a common good as something that everyone should have access to regardless of their status, regardless of um, their income, regardless of their race, then, then it would generate a, a way in which um, transit can be a, a condition of, of freedom and not um, a kind of violent structure or a structure that you walk into and you're always subject to um, this threat of violence.
1: One last question for you, Teresa. This has been a fascinating conversation, and this article is absolutely just astounding, and our listeners should definitely check it out because you talk about all these different movements. We haven't touched on that much. We've been speaking in more general terms, but everybody should go check out the writing by urban politics scholar Teresa Enright, who has been our guest this morning. She wrote the so- Society and Space magazine article, Commotion, which you can find at societyinspace.org. You can follow Teresa on Twitter at T. Enright. Teresa is the author of the 2007 Sixteen book, The Making of Grand Paris, Metropolitan Urbanism in the 21st Century. Our final question for each and every one of our guests, Teresa, is what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. You write that while public transit systems are undoubtedly vital for urban survival and are essential elements for responding to the global climate emergency, they cannot remain ossified in conventional hierarchies of power. What happens if they do remain ossified in conventional hierarchies of power in the face of crisis, whether that crisis is a global climate emergency, climate change, or the pandemic? What impact can a mobile commons have on our ability to respond to these kinds of crisis?
2: Yeah, I think, I mean, that is a difficult question, but I think if we are going to remain Ossified in these existing structures of power. And if things don't change, if transit continues to be pursued for the interests of of development, the interest of accumulation, if it continues to exclude people in the way that it does, and if we continue to service only um, certain members of the, the, the urban community and not others, then there are really grave consequences. So In terms of the environment, um, Naomi Klein recently said that, um, for her perspective, if we are going to even begin to have a just transition away from fossil fuels and away from our reliance on a carbon economy, then then free transit has to be a part of that. Um, It is a vital lever in um, making our communities and our urban centers more sustainable. So I think without that, I mean, we we don't even have a future, and that's quite a a big claim, but this is what, you know, especially climate activists and environmentalists are saying, that we we actually really need people to stop driving cars. We need to have an alternative system of mobility and public transit or communal transit might be that. And in terms of uh, the Questions related to COVID-19 and the pandemic, we're already seeing the fallout in transit systems across the, the Americas, in, in New York City, in Toronto. Um, the, the pandemic and the, the lack of ridership and the kind of decreased levels of ridership by some, you know, most systems by about seventy percent are decreased in the ridership is really decimating um, these transit and networks. And in Toronto, um, for example, there's a grave shortfall, something like $90 million a a, a month. Um, And there's been service cuts, there's been routes cut, there's been um, layoffs in terms of the employment and workers. And this is already being felt And, and people are being forced to use transit systems that especially today literally are a risk in, for their life um, because they're overcrowded and they're not maintained and they need them to get to work or to get to school or to get wherever they're going. And so I think I think the alternative um, of, of staying where we are is, is not really a viable option and it's certainly one that is um, bound up with a lot of, of harm to, to communities and especially to communities that have already been disadvantaged.
1: Teresa, I cannot thank you enough for being on the show this week. uh, Because one one of the things that you do in your article is, whenever you mention any of these other movements, whether they're happening in Montreal, Ottawa, Toronto, Vancouver, New York City, Paris, London, Santiago, wherever they are happening, you often provide links directly back to either those organizations or articles about those those movements. And so I really appreciated that because you can literally spend hours and hours on your article by looking up all these different movements, and they're all very fascinating. and seeing as how transit is such a, a linchpin of capital, that's a vulnerability for capitalism, and it's a great place for people to be organizing and making and taking actions today. Thank you so much for being on our show this week. It really has been a pleasure.
2: Well, thank you for having me.
1: All right. Take care. Keeping it real. Real deep in debt since 1996. This is Helen. If you want to help us climb out of that debt, you can... Subscribe to tomorrow's Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell, which happens every Friday at 10 a.m. live Chicago time. Become a subscriber to This Is Hell on Patreon, and you get exclusive active uh, access to our weekly Patreon podcast, which streams live at 10 a.m. Chicago time, like I just said. This week on Patreon, we will be playing our 2008 interview with Michael Hudson, a former Wall Street economist whose specialization was in the uh, balance of payments and real estate at Chase Manhattan Bank, Arthur Anderson, and later at the Hudson Institute. So, yeah, somebody who you'd expect to be on our show. Michael was actually the, uh, was Congressman Dennis Kucinich's, another past guest on our show. He was his chief economic advisor in 2008's Democratic primary presidential campaign when we interviewed Dennis Kucinich, which was hilarious. Michael was on at the time to talk about his latest writing at Counterpunch, Hillary joins the vast right-wing financial conspiracy. Show your support for Counterpunch by going to counterpunch.org and contributing to their ongoing fundraiser. Also on tomorrow's Patreon podcast, I'll be telling you what my work week is like. How and why I do this show, because listener John Asked will go behind the scenes, and I'll tell you how I go about doing my part to put together the show every week. So you if you do your own show and are interested in how I get my part of this done on a daily basis, you can find out tomorrow. During our Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell, in a few minutes, Jeff Dorchin will be delivering a moment of truth. During this week's moment, Jeff hammers the history of class consciousness into shape. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. Alex, do you have any answers that you would like to share to this week's question from Hal?
0: Yeah, yeah, and some I don't. Uh, <laughs> I know, right? Uh, and then, oh, uh, after, Jeff, I want to say something. I just got like, give me like 30 seconds. All right. Uh, Jeff D says, can't decide either the price of ice cream or maybe I could be an incel. What are you going to be deranged <laughs> about? What are you going to be deranged about after Trump? And, uh, Hannah S says, I'll be wondering where Biden thinks he is and what he's running, on, running for on a daily basis. The man thinks he's running for Senate again or that he's going to be reelected. Andress says, All you leftist extremists daring to offer any criticism of Biden. Don't you people want to lose the House in 2022? What are you going to be deranged about after Trump? Thomas K. says, Warmonger Joe. Austin RM says, Lake Erie seasonal algae blooms. John T. says, That the virus has caught something from Trump and will be spreading it. Arnell G. says, Celebrating Biden's fast approaching, the pantry is bare non-recovery by experimenting with different recipes for gruel. Sean M. says, Joe telling us to be grateful the cop shot us in the leg. And Gorilla G says, the insufficient righteousness of certain neighbors' lawn signs, along with their stupid little yappy dog.
1: You teased what you were going to say at the end of the show on Monday, and now it's Thursday. So that's
0: quite a tease. Yeah, You've I, have, a I had a four day tease I there. Four, I had four days to make it nicer. <laughs> 96 hour tease.
1: You can leave your answer to this week's question mail at our Facebook page, Facebook.com slash This Is Hell Radio. You can direct message it to us via Twitter at This Is Hell Radio, or you can email it to either one of us, Chuck at This Is Hell.com or Alex at This Is Hell.com. But we have to have your answers in now because we will. We'll be naming this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin and the moment of truth. Uh, we are looking for new volunteer board operators here on This Is Hell. If you are interested in being a volunteer board operator here on the show, all you have to do is email me, Chuck at thisishell.com. We're looking for people to be here one, two, three, four, five days a week or one, two, three, four, five days a month. All you have to do is be trained up here at This Is Hell, which is very, very easy to do. Alex did it twice this week with Jess and Daphne. So all you have to do is email me Chuck at thisishell.com. You live in the Chicago area. And you can get here to our studios at Carrie's Lounge, above Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon, here in the Westridge neighborhood on Chicago's north side. Then all you have to do is just email us, chuck at thisishell.com, and we'll see if we can get you to be one of our new board operators. Or if you live far away and you want to do some remote work with us or for us, contact us about that as well, chuck at com. Another end of the world is possible. This is hell. I know you have, hefe. I'm all You know
2: what to do. Next. One more time. moment The moment of moment moment The moment of
3: truth. Third Wave Class Consciousness Part One. Welcome to the moment of truth. The thirst that is the drink. So, I want to talk about third-generation class consciousness. I feel like the first generation harnessed a lot of unrest coming out of the 18th century. When that generalized, but violent irritation with royalty, aristocracy, and capitalism met class analysis, you had rebellions all over Europe by the middle of the 19th century, the kindling that ignited the Decembrists, and finally Lenin and Trotsky. I would include Mao, Tito, Ho Chi Minh, the Communist Party in Kerala and add to it the anti-colonialist Reds in Asia, Africa and Latin America. So this is to say that we still have with us a lot of first generation attempts to address class inequality, albeit their primary instigators are no longer. I'm lumping a lot into this first wave category. The three waves explanation is a taxonomy of convenience. No one will agree that there are three waves or that they contain the phenomena I have crammed into them, but that's fine. I have trimmed historical and conceptual clusters with Occam's razor and smashed them with Bozo's mallet to make of them an object capable of a certain brutish examination, but that's okay. Quantum physicists do this to subatomic particles all the time, and everybody thinks they are like super geniuses. The socialism in Western and Northern Europe has been hybridized with capitalism to various degrees and with various degrees of success. In many ways, it has led to improved lives for its working and middle class, but its successes have diluted the urge for economic equality, and that dilution has allowed these societies to participate in contemporary global capitalism. By claiming a lion's share of the resources supposed to be held in common by the countries of the world, and those of former colonies who in turn suffer in attempting to appease the global market and finance because that's where the money is. In general, this hybrid socialism also allows abuses of various populations according to the interests of capital. The second wave of class consciousness was very much a product of the two world wars with growing workers' power at the fore in capitalist countries. Unions, collectives, experiments with the worker ownership were reactions to the underclass's refusal to be among those made to live in desperation, especially when it had become so clear how much starvation and senseless violence the governments of the owning class were willing to dole out to their own people. The anger against the constant threat of state violence and neglect led to the surge in identity movements using the labor rebellion model as one starting place to demand lives free from molestation by the authorities and authority-aligned populations. Martin, Malcolm, and the Panthers, La Rasa, and the LA-13, the American Indian Movement, the Stonewall Uprising, and the Palestinian Liberation Movement were all part of the second wave too. Up until Reagan and Thatcher, Keynesianism was capitalism's favorite means of trying to adapt these challenges to its authority. The uh, 80s began the all-out blunt assault on all such challenges, especially that of labor. Meanwhile, in each of the communist nations, attempts of various textures were made to modify the power relationships, relationships usually manifested as a division between the party elite at the top, a party and non-party professional and managerial class, and the rest of the population, from workers to the lumpen proletariat. The Cultural Revolution in China was an attempt from within the elite to correct the course of Maoist communism, an attempt engineered from the outset to avoid the question of why there even was an arrogant, oppressive elite and a personality cult at all, and what to do about it. Rather than make an actual change in the unjust hierarchy of the society, Mao and others in power instead opted for over 20 years to exert ostensibly Corrective cultural force against a variety of people of what in the West we would call the middle class. And then, after that, began to open up China, a kind of opening up that involved making Chinese resources available for connection with global capitalism. The USSR went in the same direction. Khrushchev and Gorbachev tried their own methods of correcting communism in order to save it, but Khrushchev also allied at examination of the privilege stratification solidified in the system, somehow never electing to give way to that dictatorship of the proletariat they'd always talked about. And uh, by the time came Gorby's turn, he truly felt he had no option but to be more open to global market capitalism. Solidarność in Poland saw the workers rise up against communism itself, only for them to settle for letting the state ease itself into the NATO and world bank spheres rather than allow the workers to allow themselves to take power. Now we've come to the third wave of class consciousness, or the new new left, or whatever we're going to end up calling it, whatever we're in the middle of, which we won't know until we're deeper into it, most likely. Think of it, we're barely two conceptual generations, albeit contrived by me, separated from Marx and the First International. Some of us are worried about the last of the Holocaust generation disappearing. Meanwhile, the last of the first waivers died with Fidel in 2016, who remains of that stage of the left. Cuba, I assume, is trying some reforms, but not the actual rule by the workers. Rule by the workers. That's what dictatorship of the proletariat means. Yes. What else could it mean? Unbending Marxists act like the communist vanguard parties in Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia, and China, and the other extant communist states are working on it behind the scenes. They'll show it to us when it's finished. If a vanguard party with as much control as China's has now Xi Jinping able to shut the whole nation down and willing to rent his people to Apple or any external corporation to treat as they wish, why aren't they ready to cede power? Or why isn't Xi Jinping working for Foxconn in Shenzhen? He's part of the dictatorship. Why is he not a proletarian? Is he too good for it? Or is he some kind of representative, like an elector in the electoral college? Or is the time just not right to give workers the power. I mean, clearly the time isn't right because capitalism's hegemony puts constant deprivatory and military pressures on the few nominally socialist states left, but still the question lingers. The Soviet Union was viable, productive, scientifically advanced, culturally vibrant when it allowed itself to be, and self-sufficient by at least capitalist standards. Why couldn't they have just brought about workers' rule? Or am I being naive and there's a special, arcane, theoretical way Xi Jinping is actually a proletarian? Or I'm taking dictatorship of the proletariat too literally? That's just rubbish. You should be ashamed of yourselves if you're positing such mealy-mouthed nonsense. Slavoj Žižek would call your obfuscation a signifier without a signified. And he'd be right. It's a way of avoiding confronting your goal by making it an abstract fetish. We look back at the living legacy of the first wave. We see that every attempt to replace capitalism has led to its own privilege stratification issues for some reason, and we say it's the nature of power or the nature of humans, or else we deny the problem exists or ever existed. I hear young Marxists deny or elide the cruelty and mangling of the truth under Stalin, the spying on the population under Khrushchev and Brezhnev, the totalitarianism and state violence under the East German government, the Ceausescu dictatorship. Oh, that wasn't communism. Yeah, no kidding. So maybe come up with a way for insane dictators not to hijack the state apparatus, which shouldn't exist without the workers in charge in the first place. It's bad for the brand. The arbitrary anti-Semitism and persecution of indigenous peoples in Nicaragua under Ortega, who's been a total jerk even before the period he was put out of power by U.S. clandestine and overt violence and manipulation. Brutal paranoid revenge at the beginning of the post indochina war, Vietnam, anti-homosexual policies, and shortcuts around due process in Cuba, it's necessary to look at these offenses as much as they pale beside the destructive and murderous achievements of capitalism. Sometimes a revolution is actually fighting its internal enemies, and sometimes it's just marginalizing a group because of some arbitrary trait or designation or expression. Hey, that's supposed to be capitalism's gig. And sometimes its elites are siphoning off resources or competing in the international armaments game, and that too is capitalism's gig. Then what is it we're in the middle of? Well, on the one hand, we have fragmented, tenuously allied forces trying to see a way to maintain their principles, trying to discuss the issues before us via Twitter and YouTube and TikTok and bric a and Instapod or whatnot, with, I believe, the end goal of coming together as a united, massive revolutionary force and arrayed against us we have the economic elite the oppressing authorities protecting the elite and their privileges and the members of the rent-paying class and part of the bourgeoisie who see themselves as somehow on the same team as the elite and their institutions of enforcement. Our public policy serves arms makers and dealers banks that love the way war internal and external generates money and a network of industries stuck at a wasteful, outmoded stage of development, barely responsive and often irrationally resistant to those in society trying to bring them into a renewable, sustainable future. What do we call the emerging movement we are in the midst of? With what do we want to replace our destructive public policies? It's like Triple A for the broken down civilization, languishing by the side of the road with toxic smoke billowing out from under the hood and toxic fluids leaking out the bottom and seeping into the soil. Next week, part two of this two-part historical survey. In the meantime, please give a bit of thought to branding. All the cool kids are doing it. This has been the moment of truth. Good day
1: my favorite social media platform is instapot and by the way when we got an instapot i turned it on it did not do instantly what i thought it was going to do i thought i was just going to get pot out of it and that didn't happen either
3: <laughs> man you got to read directions they tell you right in the directions mm-hmm. read the directions
1: all right jeffy until next week what stay beautiful Oh, okay. Live from land stolen from the Pottawatomi people, this is Hell. I'm your host, Chuck Mertz, producing is Alex Jerry. Alex, do we have any more answers to this week's question from Hell?
0: Oh, yeah, sorry. Got to get my music up. Uh, okay, this week's question from Hell is, what are you going to be deranged about after Trump? What are you going to be deranged about after Trump? Uh, Josh B. says, Kamala holding up Joe in a weekend at Birdie's style for four years, or the worms will be done with me by the end of Eric the Second's reign. Neil C. says, president appointee Donald Trump Jr., <laughs> flying needle says these moms mm-hmm. all right flying Needle, will give you a pass on that mm-hmm. one andrew m says i'm going to be home home on derange oh
1: jesus
0: all right i am not talking to georgio's callus uh, who andrew uh, asked us about that degrowth that is not how ha- i'm canceling uh. that interview at this point <laughs> uh, adam b says as greg Palast hinted at not holding my breath on there after be- on there being an after trump anytime soon after all this is hell yeah Mark A.S. says, of course, we all believe that the left can go back to fighting the systematic racism of the 90s and early 20 aughts personified by bad cop Kamala and Uncle Joe. And like Barry Obama, tinker around the edges of national policy that discriminates against minority groups, while the white militia men will go back to their Iron Age forts, marry their cousins and raise a passel of mushroom headed children. So the obvious. Uh, Ronaldo M. says rising sea levels and neo-fascist responses to climate driven migration. Wally R. says feudalism. What are you going to be deranged about after Trump? Eric R. says spreaders. Edison K says normal stuff until Hitler McClansman wins the presidency, and I become deranged about him while longing for the civilized days of Trump. <laughs> uh, personally, I think Biden's a good way to get there, huh? Uh, Peter I like that. Peter J says the crass, ostentatious use of gold leaf on the Trump family guillotine, and finally Eric T says. I'll go back to vague, non-specific derangement. This has been an interesting detour.
1: I liked Edison's uh, normal stuff until hitler McLansman wins the presidency and I become deranged about him while longing for the civilized days of Trump. I also liked Adam A. saying, Dude, I remember when this show used to have light-hearted fare like those little crypto word puzzles about the latest statistical evidence of climate change and genocide sponsored by the beer I couldn't find nowhere. And now my ex is getting married. The house is underwater. And thanks, Trump. Thanks a whole lot. And Pete saying nothing at all. After Trump, we will all be perfectly well-adjusted. So the winner of this week's Question Hell is Edison K. Normal stuff until hitler McClansman. Those are five words you can definitely bet will get our attention when it comes to the question from hell. Edison, you are the winner of this week's Question Hell. You have won the new gray on black This Is Hell face mask, which everyone can find right now by going to thisishell.com. When you click on support, my answer to this week's question... What are you going to be deranged about after Trump? What will make me act in an irregular, confused manner, verging on insanity? The same thing that has had me on the edge of becoming full-blown crazy for the past 25 years. And you can tune into What's Making Me Lose My Mind every Monday through Thursday here at ThisIsHell.com at 10 a.m. And Fridays on Patreon at Patreon.com slash ThisIsHell. Thanks to everyone for sending in your answers to this week's question. And thanks for all of the support we get from Kilter and Cherish this week. Alex, who's on Monday's show?
0: Okay, on Monday, Gloria Dickey will be on to talk about her Guardian report. The Arctic is in a death spiral. How much longer will it exist? Oh, that sounds like fun. Tuesday? Uh, Tuesday, Rob Wallace is going to be back on the show to talk about his book, Dead Epidemiologists on the Origins of COVID-19. Do we have both of his interv- interviews up online? Uh, right we now? got a transcript for one, and then the second one is up. Uh, I'll get the other one up now. Uh, send me the, uh, or at least
1: the transcript for the other one, if you don't even get that up and Yeah, top. that was... Because uh, there was, was a whole bunch of audio problems, I know, with that
0: one. Yeah, that was uh, my fault for being super freaked out on the first day of quarantine, <laughs> and I uh, didn't do due diligence getting some clear audio there. Wednesday? Uh, Wednesday, Zhao Wei Wang will be on to talk about this book. I've been waiting for this book for a really long time to come out. It's uh, Blockchain, Chicken Farm, and Other <laughs> <laughs> Stories of Tech in China's Countryside. That's got to be a band name in the very near future. And Thursday, anybody uh, else? Thursday, yeah. We just booked uh, Danielle Purifoy to talk about... About, uh, her work, Knock on Wood, how Europe's wood pellet appetite fuels environmental racism in the South. That's a part one of a
1: series. You know how long that series is going to be? Now I'll ask her. Okay. We start every week's live streaming shows here at This Is hell.com with Alex revealing this week's hangover cure, this week's hangover cure, water, darkness, no smoking, eat, no bubbly, and lighter colored drinks. Thanks to all of this week's guests, international consortium of investigative journalists, chief reporter Ben Hallman, who talked to us about FinCEN, the FinCEN scandal. And uh, we, he explained to us how the world's biggest banks are laundering trillions in money linked to crime, whether they want to or not. And the Department of Treasury knows all about it and is doing nothing. Thanks to Daphne for sitting in on Monday's show as well, being the first person to be trained as a new board op here on This Is Hell. Also, thanks to returning guest Thomas Frank, who is on to talk about his book, The People Know, A Brief History of Anti-Populism, and how the two major parties and wealthy elites were so afraid of the idea of the People's Party, the original populist, that they set about in a very successful campaign to redefine what populism means into a profane form of politics, when in reality, it was always all about equality. Also, we want to thank yesterday's guest, Thomas Gokie, an organizer with the Debt Collective, who collectively authored the new book, Can't Pay, Won't Pay, The Case for Economic Disobedience. As J. Paul Getty said, if you owe the bank a million dollars, the bank owns you. If you owe the bank a hundred million dollars, you own the bank. In other words, if we collectively leverage our, all our debt together through actions like debt strikes, we can own the banks. And finally, thanks to urban politics scholar Teresa Enright, who wrote the Society and Space magazine article, Commotion, which you can find at societyandspace.org, And what today's guest. Alex, there was something that you wanted to mention that you've been teasing. Oh,
0: yeah. Just uh, I tried to make this as nice as possible. A couple times recently, uh, I've heard people on the show taking like cheap shots at like fat people or fatness because they're mad about Donald Trump or uh, people are going to vote for him. And like, I hate to be woke or thoughtful on this show. Uh, I want people to let people listening know that uh, I don't think I don't like hearing that stuff. I don't think it's right. There's nothing wrong with being fat, nothing to be ashamed about. It's not anybody's business. So I don't think it's right to be cruel and lazy to other people because a politician made you mad. People can say whatever they want on this show. I usually don't care, but I just don't like hearing stuff like this. That's it. Please clap.
1: Yeah, I don't uh, You know. First of all, Alex's views do not necessarily reflect the views of this is hell or mine. But in this case, he definitely does. And I got to say the same thing with the question from hell answers when they're just jokes about how old Joe Biden is. I just don't. That just kind of turns me off too Anyway talk to you tomorrow on Patreon when we will be playing our 2008 interview with Michael Hudson When he was on to discuss his Counterpunch article Hillary joins the vast right wing financial Conspiracy and I will be Telling you the how and why of uh, The way I do my book or do the show here uh, Real quick we got and this is Going to take a second Alex we got an email last Night from Martin who writes dear Chuck although I've been listening to your show now for Well over a year and enjoy it greatly I still have no idea where you've on the political spectrum how would you describe your politics are you a socialist communist anarchist some sort of anarcho-syndicalist i'm only asking out of curiosity i assure you that i have no intention of writing you out to this fbi or cia however i can assure you that i will continue to bombard you and alex with my horrible jokes you have been warned martin f chicago martin when it comes to not knowing my politics you're welcome I like people not knowing my politics, the team who I'm rooting for, the ism or it, which I am supposedly unquestionably a fan. So again, you're welcome. There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we have introduced to you on this week's show. That's by sitting down in the lowest position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead and saying the simple words, everybody's stupid.
3: My demon is on my butt. Uh. My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride.